All right, folks, welcome to the Monsters Madness and Magic Podcast. I'm your host, Justin, here with a quick word before we dive in. Now, in this episode, I chat with actor Garrett Wynn Davis about religion, improv, having fun on the stage, his memories filming Forever Night, and more. A little caveat, there is a brief bit of interference on his side. The audio doesn't cut out, but the video kind of skips a little, but it does clear up, so no worries there. If you're listening on your podcasting platform of choice, please leave us a review if you'd like to help the show grow. And if you're watching the video on YouTube, please like, comment, subscribe, and all that stuff. Anyway, without further ado, here you go. Take us back in yes. time. <laughs> Just that. Just that. How are you? I'm fine. Take us back in time. You're a youngster. Are you a book reader, fort builder, troublemaker, or all of the above? I like reading books about forts being built and people causing trouble inside. What uh, sort of books did you read? Did you have maybe a favorite author or genre that you lean towards? Oh, gosh. Well, growing up, well, we were in Wales then, so I was reading books in English and in Welsh, and... They would have been pretty easygoing books. My dad's a preacher and my mom was a teacher, so they would have had a pretty eclectic gathering of material. To be quite honest, I wouldn't remember a title at all. Actually, I, you know, I don't remember the last book I read, which was only yesterday. But no. <laughs> so, you know, you mentioned your father was a minister. Yeah. Do you consider yourself religious still? No, I consider myself spiritually interested. But uh, I would not not necessarily organized. Uh, I wouldn't say my dad just turned ninety six last week, and mom's ninety two, and they are so cool and hip and non uh, invasive or whatever that is. They've always been very, very cool about you know what other folks do. Right, not to jump ahead, but uh, you know, recently I spoke with Mr. John Kapalos, and he was curious. Yeah, <laughs> he was curious yes. as to whether or not your father was still alive because he was reminiscing how much how much he liked him. Well, I'll pass that along. I love John, and one of my regrets is that John and I are still not uh, in touch regularly. That's 
it's too bad. But that just lies going different directions. But uh, I love John Kaplos. He's an amazing human being and a fabulous player. A great partner in, 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 in a show. Would you say that either one of your parents were artistically inclined at all? Do you think that's where some of your roots lie in regards to that those attributes? Well, I would not, not in any... Well, dad, dad plays the piano. He writes music. He writes poetry. He, he does that. And his his preaching uh, is, without question, the most engaging preacher I've ever seen. He's just fun. Doesn't do it as often anymore. But he was in church just Sunday, and they announced that he just turned ninety six. And there was a lot of hooting and hollering and good good old camaraderie on that. But they encouraged. Well, I went to a boarding school from early on, so I guess a lot of stuff came from just that environment. And also because you had so much time and so many different people that you could be influenced by. And, but yeah, 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 no, no, they weren't artistic in that way, but they are, are creative. They're creative, but not an artist. Oh, and my son likes to write music and he does all sorts of things. So it's been passed on down through the lineage. <laughs> what was the catalyst for the move from Wales to North America? Do you remember that being a culture shock? It was a culture shock, but it was mom, mom and dad. Dad, mostly, I'm going to say. Uh, you know, a lot of what probably I say is all revisionist anyway, because, you know, I can't remember that. But dad just wanted to explore new worlds, new countries. And I, that's why I'm in Thailand. I continue to do that. Uh, I, I carry their torch for them. Uh, and he was very happy to do so. We, we went back to Wales all the time, almost every year after we came over to Canada. Well, actually, we came to America first, to Chicago. Full disclosure, a place outside of Chicago called Berwick. But then we went back to Wales and came back to Canada. And uh, yeah, it was a huge culture shock for my brother and myself because, you know, all of a sudden, you know, two little Welsh boys are in Grand Valley, Ontario, and they have to play ice hockey. You don't know anything about ice hockey. So there was a lot of stuff. But people were great. It was great. And then going to boarding school, it was a whole different world anyhow. So eh, it was good. So what sort of records were spinning around the house when you were growing up? What kind of music did you like to listen to? Oh, well, now then, we listen about well, mum and dad would listen to Max Voice, who's a Welsh comedian, and some of that. Uh, uh, dad always liked his uh, organ music. He always liked the accordion and things like that. But my brother and I, ooh, we were right there with uh, ooh, the circle singing Red Rubber Ball. These are the songs I remember coming to uh, Canada. Oh, gosh, if my brother was walking by now, because we have a property in Thailand, I could ask him and he'd remember everything. But we listened to all the, the guys who were playing in the, in the you know, mid to late 60s when we were kids and early 70s, all of the popular gang. And we went to see a lot of concerts, too. Uh, my brother's a big concert goer and, he, you know, he's 14 months older, so not a whole lot. And we'd go see a lot of things together. Like all the, you know, all the quiet bands like Led Zeppelin and Alice Cooper. <laughs> Did you ever pick up an instrument or anything like that or have any inkling to join yeah, bands? I, I, I write a lot for the piano and stuff like that. It's mostly mm. for my own uh, interest. But over the years, you know, you do things like, you, you know, you have a funky television show and a group of people want something that you do extra. So I wrote a charity album and we raised money for a charity. And I used to write a couple of tunes for the, the program Forever Night with Fred Mullen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our, our musical great guy. Anyway, yeah, that was, it was, uh, I've always enjoyed it. It's always been, it, actually, you know, I'd probably do that if I wasn't an actor, I'd probably do it. So when you think back to formative films and TV shows that you grew up on, what comes to mind? <laughs> well, we had so many cheesy ones, but I, I, I take that back because they were very, very influential. Things like combat and Twilight Zone and, of course, I Dream of Genie, all those things, you know. And also because we only had three stations, you watched whatever they gave you. But the Carol Burnett show, oh, 
stuff like uh, Dick, Dick Van Dyke, Dick Van Dyke show, all those sh- shows back then. But I, my brother and I, when we were watching it, uh, a lot of it was, uh, you know, 12 o'clock high, or I'm not making up titles now, but, uh, you know, The Rat Patrol, you know, stuff, stuff like that for film, because we didn't see a lot of films until we were older. We did, hardly ever saw films in Wales. Maybe maybe Battle of Britain or something, or uh, later on Sound of Music and stuff like that. But yeah, it wasn't until later that the, the film, the appreciation of film came into play. My personal favorite episode of The Twilight Zone is The Howling Man. I don't know if you're familiar with that one. Do you have a personal favorite episode? I can't pick one out right now. So, I'm say the same as yours. That's a good one, same I promise. Yours. So if anyone asks me, I'll say, just ask Justin. He'll <laughs> There you go. This is another question I like to ask everyone, because just because you never know. Um, what scared you as a kid? Oh, small spaces, uh, claustrophobia, and heights. Still to this day? Oh, gosh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would hate to be in a coffin on the edge of a building. That would just be a, a, a bad day. That would be a really bad day. I can agree with that. <laughs> yeah, not, not interesting. Yeah, not too much else. Family in Wales and stuff, uh, you know, had farms and stuff, so animals were not a problem. And uh, crowds were never, like, uh, you know, speaking and stuff like that was never a problem because watching dad do his preaching on a Sunday and mum being the principal of the school I went to, uh, you know, there was a lot of uh, their presence was there. They, they were in command of their spaces. So do you have a maybe a eureka, an aha moment you can point to in retrospect where well, you decided to give acting well, a try? Yeah, kind of. I used to sit with a church organist. It's a kind of a, maybe it's a stock one for me, but it's the one I always kind of think of. And because I love music. So I sat with him and he was in the balcony, of course, of the, of the chapel of the church. And dad was doing uh, uh, the, uh, the sermon. And he liked to keep them sh- somewhat short. Personally, if I was an editor, I would have cut them down a little further. But hey, you know, it's semantics. <laughs> uh, but uh, dad was telling a story about a cat. I had idea what he was talking about but the the congregation was falling about laughing and the organist was kind of laughing away too and i remember one of one of his elbows hit the organ and went, which of course uh, got more response and i thought there's something i really like about this <laughs> but i'm not sure about the you know the, the the sermonizing thing i just remember i want to do something like that and years and years later i was in wales i was working in wales and we went to what is essentially the equivalent of the bafta awards but in wales so the welsh baftas that's it and there was a group of us i'm going to say five and we were all ministers kids and they all knew one uh, one another the, the parents the, the preachers and we decided that that was the platform that they had at that time and now we as a group of individuals you know one guy ran bbc wales one ran a huge uh, entertainment corporation i was an actor there was a you know whatever everyone had found their voice in the kind of arts or entertainment industry but it, because that's our platform that's our world whereas back then the place for it really was the pulpit so it was is watching dad and being around <laughs> over again. Yeah, that sounds weird. But uh, it was great. And I was seven. First time on stage as a performer, and did it go off smoothly? Oh, I hope it never goes smoothly. I, uh, <laughs> one of the things I relish in is the immediacy and the uh, uh, living in the moment of, particularly the theater. Um, no, not even the theater. The, the television as well. So first moment. Well, it was, again, it was performing in probably a church play. And, oh yeah, no, I had to sing an Italian song. Uh, um, oh, I'm gonna blank now. Anyway, I, 
no idea what the words were. It was Italian. What, what? No. So it was a lot of, and I've been doing it ever since. A lot of, you know, trying to make make uh, make up for it by, you know, happy face acting and blah, carrying on. But it, and nobody seemed to mind. So I thought, okay. So the deal is, as long as you're enjoying yourself, folks will go along with you. I think so. That's that's the deal. So would you say that your role, I mean, your approach as an actor differs depending on whether you're on stage or on screen? No, I mean, obviously, technically, yes, but the approach mentally, no. I think rigor, enjoyment, basically, it's the work you do before you show up. There's a lot of it, but also the, your relationships, the relationships you have with others, unless it's a soliloquy, unless it's a one-man show, which I did for years, and that cast party was about as much fun as a <laughs> as, as a root canal. <laughs> yeah, it's the relationships you develop. It's the uh, I just did a show at the Stratford Festival in Canada last year called Grand Magic. It's an Italian piece by Eduardo De Filippo. And it was fabulous. And one of the reasons it's fabulous, the whole cast was great and stuff, but there was a young actor that I was working with, and our relationship was, his name is Gordon Hill, just the amount of trust and ego-free, best idea wins, worst ideas allowed, uh, just the, the idea of you're allowed to think, you're never going to think the exact same thing. So the uh, the complete welcoming of new thoughts, new approaches, new things. And that, that I would say, comes to television as well. The one thing about, let's say, certain shows, like uh, one of the first uh, series, uh, well, no, I guess I'd done a couple before, it was a thing called Airwolf. And just what we did was laugh. We laughed a lot. And then on Forever Night, we laughed a ton. That's what we did. We kind of laughed. And what was great is because the stories were so gothic and so... Mm, very important in between that angst, things like that. There were a lot of outtakes that, oh, goodness gracious, the fact that we actually got through it was a testament to, I don't know, the fact that it was late night and everyone wanted to go to bed. No, so your question is about difference in the approach. No, it's to be alert and excited, basically just to be excited, to be wanting to be there. The times when you don't want to be there, oh my gosh, that's when you, I guess, that's why you earn your living. I just... Uh, I've got a part of a mantra that I do, and I go, uh, joy and, and create, uh, sorry, integrity and joy and creativity. And I think those that's the kind of thing. If you're going to do it, just be integrous and and have a joy. Go about the joy. I don't think it should cause you pain. Mm. I think it should cause you thought. Like, you have to think about it. You have to work at it. You have to engage, etc. But I, I'm not a big seeker of pain. I, and I, I do like my drama either in front of a camera or on the stage. I don't like it in real life. So. Well said. Uh, how much character work do you do behind the scenes? Stuff that we may never see as the audience, maybe making a journal for your character, answering some questions you may have personally or stuff like that. Well, because of the fluidity that I've always sought, I try not to jam anything down. I try to keep everything as fluid as it possibly can. Now, that could also just be because I was a lazy kid and that's the way I carried on throughout the rest of my life. I was also a quick thinker early on, and you know, we used to call it dancing as fast as you can. There's something about that that you have to, you just have to respond. Okay, there. But yeah, journal, uh, journaling, a lot of very, very good folk do that, and I agree with it for the individual. I, there's no one way about this. There just can't be, and, and that's why meeting new people is, will always be interesting because it's, it's just new. And you never, I, I don't know about following in the footsteps of anyone. You 
you know, certainly climb on the shoulders and appreciate that. But following in the footsteps, I don't ever want to copy anyone. Unless, of course, it's a combination of Benny Hill and Jack Nicholson. But, but you know, other than that, forget <laughs> it. That's it. And if Roger Moore was the godfather, that's where I've always had Benny, <laughs> Roger, Jack. Thanks, guys. Anyway. We're kind of already dancing around this a bit, but I, I like to ask all actors this as well. To us non-actors, the layman, you know, method acting has sort of become a muddled term catch-all but what i've discovered speaking with actors so many years is that each actor almost has their own individualized method. personal method yeah so what's, what's your method well it's it, i think method acting, acting the way i would just say it it's just really finding your truth and your authenticity so uh, uh, yourself to that character so whatever it takes to get that truth the truth that's it that's kind of it well there's an old joke in the theater of course that um Acting is all about truth and honesty, and once you learn to fake that, you've got it made. Um, <laughs> it's, it's just so cynical, but it is kind of funny. Oh, it, it, so if your method is to, if what you want to do is only speak in the Greek dialect and hop, hop, hop on one foot for the entire time, even during you know lunch breaks and going home in, in the car, then cool, then do so. But if your thing is to tell jokes, although it's really annoying for the other actors, but up until the moment of action, well, that's what you do. Uh, I know actors who do that. I know one actor, I won't say his name because I really like him, but it's really annoying. He read from a book out loud up until the point where the director called him action and then he just put the book down and started and you're going, what? What, what are you doing? <laughs> it wasn't particularly <laughs> sharing. No, it was delightful to be with him. But, um, anyhow, so there's many different ways of going about it and everybody's own is everybody's own. Of course, you can go to uh, uh, great theater schools who will teach you a technique, uh, and that's cool too. I didn't, so that's one of the reasons I can't speak for those methods because I started acting professionally at eighteen without so-called um, uh, institutional training. All right, just hearing you speak about your own work, you seems like it's more improv. Well, you know, it's funny. Okay, so there's an element of improvisation, but not really because you are working with. Uh, text you're working with somebody's ideas that they've spent a lot of time putting down on paper yeah i, I think that I, I, there are probably a couple of actors who if they heard me say that they call the bs uh, on me because i do tend to go well it's not written in stone and <laughs> kind of go yeah but you know what they did work hard on it so maybe give it a little bit more of but yeah so yes there's an element of and i'm not gonna say improv but there's uh what's the, what's a good word of well, certainly play. But though hopefully, hopefully, and you know, I've traveled a lot. What, what I, I've always liked to do is work, but then I want to go and explore and meet people in different situations, different countries, different continents. And so hopefully there's information gathered on those times where it's just information that you can bring to the screen or, or certainly to the theater, which is what I've been doing mostly in the last little while. And I like big ideas, so big ideas. And, and failing, fabulous. If you can't fall flat on your face, then I don't know what you're doing. You got it. You got you to go big. got to go big. Hit for the, hit a homer. Can you recall a bit of direction or advice that you've been given from a director that has made a role or a scene click for you? Often. It's great to have a guide from outside your own head. There was actually, there's a piece that I really like. I was not getting along with this particular director, and I wasn't finding the role at all. And it was really hard. I was, damn, it was, really, it was a difficult piece. But he said, Garrett, hey, dude, I know, I know this is not, we're not getting along, but you're not the hero. You do not have to be the hero. 
And that's all he needed to say. Because I was playing, I was playing for the, to be the hero, to be liked, to be yum, 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 yum. And I just completely threw everything out and started from scratch, coming at it from a place of not knowing the answer. And that was really, really helpful. And it ended up working out very well for everybody. And But that's because I had this image that I was stamping on everything I was doing. Really sad, really pathetic, really not deep thinking on my part at all. Anyway, worked out really well. But just don't play the hero. You know, don't don't have all the answers. Do not have all the answers. The guy does not have all the answers. So don't, you don't need them. So how did the transition from stage to screen ultimately happen for you? Well, this was back into the 70s. So did we know any better? I don't I don't know if we knew any better. <laughs> I think, I, I think, I mean, I started in the theater. Uh, we, well, you know, we were in, I was in Canada and there was the CBC, which is the Canadian Broadcasting Commission, it's a Canadian national thing. There was a uh, CTV, which was a Canadian television, like the name. Anyway, uh, anyway, there were three stations. And what you do is you go and audition when you weren't acting on uh, in the theater and hopefully someone will give you a gig. I mean, all the great shows like The Littlest Hobo and all those <laughs> dog shows and things, you know, you'd want to become on those shows. And I think really, you sucked for the first few years and then tried to suck less as time went on. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It just, it was part of it. We were all doing it. And there were so, as I recall, again, just make it up, but there weren't that many actors of my age because I was you know, fairly young at that time. And so if there were six roles and the other five guys got the other five roles, well, there was one left. So you got it. So you went and, you know, played that part. It's not as if you were particularly the, oh my God, we got him for the gig. They're kind of like, oh, is there nobody else? Okay, well, we'll give it to him. So it just was trial and error and learning from the folks. Well, that's the other thing. A lot of people who were directing and things like that had come from, let's say, the BBC, who came a lot over to Canada, uh, and they were directing the stuff we did, you know, uh, uh, multiple cameras, but not, you know, they were all tied by huge cables. And did a cop series, which was those cameras. If you're doing a chase scene, of course, the chase stops after you run out of cable. (laughs) You're just kind of hysterical. I think it truly is just learning as you do it, uh, listening as much as you possibly can. It was great. I just wanted to go back to theater. Uh, You know, the scenery is slightly harder to chew uh, in the theater, so (laughs) it's better for my digestion. Right. <laughs> Just speaking on Forever Night for a for a minute here. Do, when you think back yeah. to the audition, does it, do you recall it being a typical audition? Does anything stand out about it? And were you aware of the uh, the Rick Springfield? I think it was TV movie prior to that. Not not at the time. It was an interesting period. It was. 91, 92, and I just finished playing Hamlet over in Great Britain for five months. Oh God, just played forever. I was back in Canada, and I had to get out of the house, so you know, went on a couple of auditions, and one of them was for this show called Forever. Well, actually, it wasn't called Forever. It was called Nickman. Actually, at the time, it was called Nickman. And I went into the room, and then there were a bunch of people there, but there was one guy there that I kind of found him really interesting. And he said, uh, can you mind drinking blood? And uh, I said, do I, do I like blood? He said, well, you're a vampire, but is it, so I had a stupid question. I like, is it human blood? Actually, no, it's cow blood. Ah, okay, whatever. So you just did it and left. Not too much else. I think the second audition was a little bit more, you know, in, in, the, in the flow. So then they chose three people to fly down to Los Angeles to audition for CBS. 
and I was one of them, and did the audition in the room with the CBS, all that. and they didn't like any of us. Didn't like any of us. No, no, they're not right. So James Parriott, my friend Jim, Jim was the creator, producer of that program. Jim said, bugger it. And he kind of said, I like you. I, you're, I think you're the one. Because they decided, oh, and so at this point, I'd seen the Rick Springfield one uh, uh, by the Los Angeles one. And I thought it was really cool, really hip. Uh, it was very LA, uh, lots of rock music. And, um, you know, just it was slightly cooler. But Jim wanted something different. Well, for a lot of different reasons, actually. One of them, uh, he once said that the, the flashbacks in Forever Night, because uh, often in each story, uh, something would have happened in the 800 years that midnight had been uh, undead or whatever you call it, that would inform the story that was happening in the present day. Because uh, Nick, uh, Forever Night, that became, uh, Nick was a vampire who became a police officer to atone for his past. The show was about redemption, about belief, about religious beliefs, about God, about loss, about loneliness, about lots of different things. So, I, but I found the Rick Springfield one really cool, but it didn't have flashbacks and had rock music. We had more gothic music. Jim decided, no, you're you're my guy. So he got a studio. He got fans. He got you know. I was in a duster coat, cool you know, thing up, and the hair doing whatever, blowing, doing acting, all that stuff. And I thought it was growing goofy. It was good, and it looked good. Like so, it looked great. It's not just not you in a room with a pair of jeans and a t-shirt. You know, they did up the thing. And then I gathered the stories that they showed it to the executives. And uh, they said, no, I said, that, that guy, that guy who worked, we like that guy. He goes, well, he, he just saw you two couple of days ago. Okay, well, still, go for it. So Jim was very instrumental in me doing that. And I wasn't sure about it. Again, it was a vampire show. It's not as if a ton of them had been around, you know. It was before that huge rash of vampire shows. But Jim, before he rewrote the pilot for our two-part opening, uh, he insisted on reading the Anne Rice. I believe at the time there was only interview with a member. Could be wrong. He wanted more of that feel so that it had more of the kind of seriousness, more of the uh, how much of a sacrifice it is to not drink human blood all the time. What, what it is to be 800 years old. I'm wobbling all of the shop here. But any, in any of that, Jim rewrote it in a much more gothic-y, and also shooting in Canada, shooting in Toronto, Canada, which was really cool. So, and it was good for me because I knew a number of individuals who worked up there. So I got to work with a lot of friends. So, but also we got to shoot Toronto as Toronto. And normally because the show was designed for CBS, it was one of the first shows designed for American Network that used Toronto as Toronto. Just cool. Because you yeah. didn't have to hide behind it was Boston or New York or Chicago or across. Like that, and you'd be because we filmed all at night, which was really tough on the old brain. Uh, you know, you'd be driving through the, seat, the streets of uh, Toronto, and I, uh, the character had this great '64, '60s. Ah, God, I'm gonna be smacked for not knowing what it was. <laughs> great convertible Cadillac with the, the wings, and the, and you're driving through the streets of the city, thinking there's nobody really up here, and you know the lights are flashing because it's uh, great. It was it was a, a joy, and the the crew and cast, the cast crew, everybody, we became kind of a family because nobody else was up at that time of night. So yeah. we, we were what we had, and I just remember laughter. I remember, of course, there would be times of stress and things like that. The overwhelming feeling I get when I think about it was uh, was really enjoying the people. 
Yeah, and I know I mentioned earlier I spoke with Mr. Kaplos, but I also spoke with Nigel Bennett. Yeah, well, I see Nigel back in Stratford. I see Nigel often. And they both lamented the same thing about the show, which they had fun times, but it was the shooting schedule. And you just touched on that, oh, and they absolutely no, no. hated it. Well, and not to take anything away from Nigel John, because they worked really hard, particularly uh, John in the first couple of years. But I uh, didn't miss a shooting day for two seasons. Mm. And that would have been 50, it was 24, 26, 50 episodes. And I had black, I, I never, yeah, right. It's all still screwed up the old sleep schedule. <laughs> and it's that is, we started that show 32 years ago. 32 years ago. Wow. 32 years ago, February. Yeah, 32 years ago. Is there an aspect of, obviously it shoots, I mean, it sucks doing night shoots all the time, but it is a vampire show. Is there an aspect of that that adds to it just as an yes. actor, an extra layer for you? To work with? Well, even just the uniqueness of it. Even uh, just the... Well, it was great arriving in the afternoon when the sun was still up. And then pretty soon after, it's gone. And you go, oh, this is the beginning. This is breakfast. <laughs> oh, damn. Well, it got us into a different way of thinking. You know, you couldn't... You, your day... <laughs> I used to get home. Uh, I'd sit on the front porch because it'd be like 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning or something. And I'd have the end of the day libation. Oh, that's a good day, mother. And the post, uh, the post worker, postal worker would come and be dropping off the mail, and he'd see this pathetic dude drinking at six thirty, seven o'clock in the morning. Like, no, 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 no. Seriously, I'm just working. It's not. No. <laughs> couldn't, couldn't convince him. He thought, well, that's poor guy. Yeah. It was fun. It was fun, and I'm glad he was there. Uh, I'm not one to. Uh, you know, to live there, I appreciate it, all of it, but uh, I don't live in the past, as for and, and plenty of uh, interesting things, children and countries, I've lived all over the place, and other gigs and stuff uh, show up, and you have to engage on those. You can't be playing in the house you just sold. you got to move to a new one, because the, the, the new owners are going to really hate it. Get out! Yeah. <laughs> so I got John's perspective on this, basically asking him what he thought happened between season two and season three because even to this day it's hard to find season three and he basically just you know detailed how he thought the show was shifting and putting uh breaking up the nick and skanky aspect basically i think there was a lot of politics involved but we moved from you know from cbs to syndication to usa and whatever happens with the powers that be with histories between this that the other thing with demographics, I remember being a big thing. They were skewering towards some something younger, which is when Ben and Lisa came on the show. Uh, yeah, it was different. Uh, it was really sad to see John go. I mean, there was just it was kind of that way. You were used to where's John? John, but then but then again, we all had that. John, Kath, Deb, Nige, myself, Natsuko, Gary, Blue, Lisa, and Ben. Everyone had a. Anyway, everyone enjoyed each other's company. So I was very sad to see John go. It didn't feel right for the first little bit. And then, of course, as I say, then you have to get on with it. You're doing it, so you have to get on with it. I'm going to get crucified if I don't ask you this, because obviously, you know, when I teased that you were coming on the show, I had a bunch of Forever Night fans just run up on me and ravage me. But I forever <laughs> Have you uh, had any contact with Miss Deborah Duchesne since the show ended? Do you know if she's okay? Because no one's heard from her. I, I got it. That's okay. I haven't, I haven't seen Kath. I haven't seen Deb. I haven't seen John. I see a lot of Natsuko. Now, that's fantastic. I love Natsuko. And I see a lot of Nige. 
I don't see Gary much, and I don't see Blue, and I'd love to see those guys. It's just weird how you, uh, how your satellite is. No, I haven't seen Deb. No, I have not seen Deb, and that, that's also Deb. Deb wasn't there. Yeah. The last year, she came back, uh, but no, and that was strange, as I recall. Can't remember why. So you miss because you're a family, right? You're a family, and suddenly one of the most important, well, both in John and Deb's case, family, they're, they're not there. What's going on? So yeah, I remember being a little. I was not settled with those decisions for whatever they were. I never did find out exactly what happened right. because I thought it was probably better not to weigh in and then go in, you know, try to carry a big stick and walk into a room. Okay, oh. So the cool thing is, you know, when you come up with an idea and at the time you think it's brilliant. Now, I'm not sure Forever Night's the best name, but I remember when they were changing the name from Nick Knight because of Nickelodeon, because Nickelodeon was coming in and Nick at Night and stuff like that, and they weren't sure about that. And you know, There's a bunch of reasons. And uh, it was early on in the first couple of episodes. Of course, I like word plays and things like that. So I offered Jim the title Forever Night. And he goes, that's the one. And I'm going, oh, oh yeah, yeah, right. But I'm not 100% sure that was, the, that was the killer title. Not sure. Out of all the projects you've worked on, you know, stage, screen, what have you, which would you consider the most challenging is the one that, in particular that you've lost a lot of sleep over? I don't lose sleep over it. I, I find ways to to enjoy it. I went through a period where I find it difficult to go. I, the business wasn't thrilling me much. Uh, the doing, I was enjoying. But the stuff surrounding it just became a little, just a little empty, maybe. Just mm -hmm. a little. One of my favorite things was playing Cyrano de Bergerac in Washington, D.C. Cyrano was great. All of them. All the classics. I mean, that's the great thing about one of the things being in, in, in the theater. You can do a new play. You can do a classic. And, and they all bring their own set of challenges so this is a uh, a question i like to ask everyone as well have you ever had an experience you would consider supernatural or paranormal every time i look in the mirror in the morning <laughs> i wonder how the heck did that person get into my, my life yeah yeah but it, it was it was in france because that's where i was just living uh, up until january for the last few years and yeah it was a very distinct feeling of uh, an aerial presence that felt as if it came down and just went down and through. It was very interesting, very odd. Didn't dwell on it, but I do think I do think we have. Of course, I I, I believe that there's a lot of well, there are more things on heaven and earth, as Hamlet says to Richard. I mean, things you can't possibly know everything, and there's a lot of power and entity and stuff that that we share, and just we should embrace it rather than be scared about it. I, I I, uh, the negativity uh, factor, I try not to bring too much into the world around me. So. Best acting advice you've received and who gave it to you? I think it was that bit that I, um, that I was mentioning earlier. You don't have to be the, always be the hero. Or, or, and you can take that for any, any whatever you're playing. You don't always have to be that. And not every, I'd say to myself, not every, let's say, we'll use hero again, not every hero is the same. Not every so-and-so is the same. You don't have to fit into that little box of what maybe when we were watching uh, a Twilight Zone or something, that they were telling the story about that. Make it your own. I don't think copying is a good idea. I think failing. I think if you don't try to fail, that's that's. I think I say that because I'm really, really good at it. <laughs> <laughs> and, I'm, and I should say I'm used to it. So Just a... Uh... Would you think? Would you say it's uh, fair to say, just as an artist, that you prefer the stage to the screen? Take pay and everything out of it, of course, obviously. Oh well, we, <laughs> uh, preference, preference, preference. Different periods, I enjoyed 
I enjoyed doing the television film thing quite a lot. And I was directing there for a number of years and I enjoyed doing that. And then of course, when you direct yourself, you don't listen to a word the director says. It's a joke. Um, sorry. Uh, but, uh, you know, and there were times where I'd be, you know, doing, uh, directing during the, the, the day. So you already have a 12 hour day and then have to go and be an actor in a night shoot. And you think, whoa, okay. And I know people do that, but I, I, I found that really, really hard. I think I um, became disillusioned a little bit with the with the business. I think I mentioned it just before with the business of well, the whole yeah. It just shifts. It shifts, and it it takes a while to catch up occasionally. And now I'm loving both again. But the theaters, you get to spend a lot of time with folks and and explore a lot. You have more time. Do you think acting for so long before you tried directing helped you helped you kind of navigate how to work with actors on the other side of the camera, I guess? Yes. And I will also say that uh, you say somehow less. So you're trying not to, to micromanage because you know that the freedom to explore is an interesting one. And if it's not in the, uh, the guidelines of the story, then you'll, you'll go in and, and give a little nugget of wisdom but uh normally it's a lot and particularly on series television uh, you know you're you're asking particularly for uh, continuing characters regular characters they, they that's they live that thing they know it uh, you're really there to keep the the stories on track and mm. you know hopefully get a camera move or two that's okay but it's not about that really it's capturing the story so and the one thing about that, that was cool about forever night because it was a vampire show in 1992, you know, we were doing all sorts of camera angles and stuff and colors and things that hadn't been done a lot of. So it was in the newness of it all. And of course, we we're still shooting on film, uh, which means, you know, you don't get to instantly play back and see everything. You have to trust your, 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 your the folks who are brilliant at what they do, like the, the DP and the camera operator and the, uh, the focus pullers and stuff. And so you say, okay, okay, guys, what do you think? Do we have it? Yeah, I think so, Gary. I think I, I missed the frame over here, blah, blah, blah. You go, that's great, because I really like the performances. Yeah. So you can move on. Whereas now you get to see everything immediately after it's shot. So you're, I don't know, you just don't get to, not that the word trust is wrong, but you, you don't get to um, ask the advice of your of your fellow filmmakers. I really enjoyed that part. I really enjoyed the, the working together, the, the idea that there is no way this is about any one person, not a hope. It's about a lot, a lot of folks who get together. And uh, yeah, I'll tell you, a positive room is a positive room. Just uh, you, since you mentioned Forever Night again, just uh, wondering, how was it going from just in one episode, you may be doing a Shakespearean st uh, style scene. Then in the next mm -hmm. scene, you know, it's more it's more modern, contemporary. Was that challenging or fun? Fun. It's absolutely fun. You think about it, you know, when we're kids, uh, you know, a kid can change luck and go from crying to laughing his head hysterically at a bunny hitting a pole. I don't know, whatever. Uh, it's, you know, you, you, you're able to just shift. Your mind is limitless in its invention. So, yeah, I know we've got more technical things. I get it. But the idea of, of being able to just shift genres and stuff and that's what we do too i'm gonna be the uh cowboy today uh you be the sheriff you be the outlaw uh notice how i dodged the uh, other story that you could have gone that was good yeah. hold that one out um <laughs> whoa wow good girl uh 
anyway, and then and then you suddenly become uh, an alien, uh, and blah blah. You, you just do all sorts of things, and you know, if you, you find a stick, that's one story, and then you found a balloon. Well, that's a different. Oh, and then two become one. Anyway, I think there's yeah. So to answer your question, n no, not difficult to come. Completely fun. The only concern, of course, is how the wig is fitting and whether it's on frontwards or backwards. And, uh, and and some some of the things like when I would play a cowboy, I thought, well, you know, what what this footage is going to do is make sure that I'm never cast as a cowboy in, a, in another film. So okay, there you go. Well, I'll know that. You know, we all have our strengths and our not but strengths. So, are you familiar with the actor Armin Shimmerman? No, I don't know Armin. He uh, just tell me, tell me what Armin would have done. Maybe I'm just being thick. Star Trek: The Next Generation. He was Quark. Oh yes, yes. Sorry, I beg your pardon. Of course. So he said something to me that I really like asking other actors now. There's been a handful of occasions throughout his career where he knows he did this play on this date, and he knows that he was on stage, but he cannot remember the performance because he he was in such a zone. Have you ever had ah, that experience? To go into a zone, yes. But you know what? There are elements during anything, and they are technical elements mostly, that you have to embrace. So there is a moment where you have to come out of that zone just for safety for lots of different reasons. But And also it depends on the nature. You know, the story about um, who was in playing Hamlet, and I think it was a modern setting, and the actor picked up the phone and heard the father's voice on the phone. I don't want to say names because I just might be making one up. And he was so in the, the world of uh, the, the young man who lost his father that... He heard the voice at the other end of the phone. That's pretty cool. So, uh, Mr. Davies, not going to keep you all morning here. Just to put a bow on this thing here, what's on the horizon for you that you can share without getting in trouble? Well, no, I could uh, just show you the horizon over here. It's beautiful. Uh, no, uh, <laughs> I'm doing a play, uh, a piece from 1848 called London Assurance uh, at the Stratford Festival this summer. That's kind of what I'm doing now for the mm. most part. And uh, so I'm doing that, and uh, it's funny. Well, let's put this way. We certainly hope it's going to be fun. And it should be. It is has farcical elements. It has a new comedy. Back in the you know 19th century, it was a new comedy, kind of comedy. But there are certain elements, of course, that people will have fun writing about the inappropriate nature of certain things, which kind of makes me giggle, <laughs> feel great. Because I do, I know, you know, inappropriate stuff, blah, blah, blah. But come on. I, I do think that if we don't keep these guys going upwards, we're done. No, keep, keep it up. Oh, it's going to be a lot. So it's, it's uh, London Insurance, a great company. Uh, anyway, that'll be fun. So it's all summer at the Stratford Festival. So I'm basically hanging out in uh, Thailand with my brother, and then I'm going to Vietnam and Laos, and then I'm going to see my kids in California, and then I'm going to go to New York, and then I'm going to go and serve. Wow, busy man. <laughs> no, it's all. Yeah, the thing is, I only have a pair of flip flops, so I don't know. I'm, I'm going to have to invest in a pair of shoes somewhere. <laughs> well, uh, Mr. Davies, I really appreciate your time. Thank you, sir. I appreciate. Take care, you. Justin. You have a great rest of your day. Bye. All right, folks, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Mr. Davies. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you back next time. Monsters Madness.